this truth is worth it, and it's the truth that gives you access to it. It's the knowledge, the truth that you teach that gives you access to this. But this truth is under threat from two different directions. Two different directions, and there's a tightrope that Nicola was explaining last week. If you were here, you'll remember that those two directions can be used by the, the slightly long words, legalism and licentiousness. Legalism and licentiousness. Akir Sharifs, who was our curate a few years ago, has written a whole PhD on this from the works of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian who ended up in Hitler's prisons during the war. And basically, the idea is that the church, and us generally as people, humans, tend to fall in two different directions. Here's the tightrope down the middle here. Um, on the one hand, we fall down the, I just want to do it my way and be left on my own. <laughs> And on the other hand, we fall down the other direction, which is the sort of the toddler direction of, it's not fair, I've had to do it, they've got to do it too. <laughs> yeah? So this is the legalistic, it's not fair, I had to do it, they've got to do it too. And this is the, I just want to do it my own way. <sighs> and I don't know if you've got a character preference for one or other of those yourselves in your natural life or in your spiritual life, but we, we, tend, to, we tend to fall one way or the other. The Christian life, according to Jesus Christ, is a narrow road. But right next to the narrow road, according to Jesus Christ, is a broad road that leads to destruction. So the narrow road's difficult to walk on. And on each side, we'll see how that pans out as we go through with what he's been entrusted to. But Paul wants to establish, this is chapter 3, that the starting point that we're starting from before we know Jesus is not a good place to start from. And you have to understand that when God made humanity, he made us and we were very good, yeah? But by the time Jesus comes and the gospel kicks in in three quarters of the way through the scriptures, it's been pretty much proven through history that what Paul says in chapter 3, verse 3, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by every kind of passion and pleasure. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. And that's pretty much what the history of the world proves again and again. Now, we're quite lucky, aren't we? 21st century uh, UK, we're living in the afterglow of what we call Christendom. Do you know what Christendom is? It's that sort of enculturating of Christianity into society. So over 17 centuries of hard-fought, half-won ways, the sort of the laws of Scripture increasingly became the laws of the land here. So the Ten Commandments, which are written on the back of most churches, became part of British law. If you go to the Old Bailey, you'll see Scripture quotations all around the Old Bailey, the, the main uh, law place in, in London. Why? Because our law, our, our British law, our English law, has been based on many of the ideas in Scripture through this hard-won sort of intellectual, spiritual, moral conquest of a country where most people were baptised into the Church of England. And it was a sort of a, a respectable veneer of Christianity. We, we've lived with that. So we don't often have to face up to the idea that our base level is foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by every kind of passion and pleasure because there's a lot to restrain us from that in culture. Yeah, I can't just decide I'm going to hack someone to death if they've looked the wrong way at my wife. But rewind a couple of millennia, pretty get away with it. 
There's a lot of law that has held us fairly well. And that was true also for the people of God in the Old Testament. They had law to hold them within a covenant with God pretty well. And yet, the law couldn't save them. And the law hasn't saved our nation either or our hearts because the law is unable to change our hearts. So although we may be restrained from acting out on some of our passions sometimes, if we thought we could get away with it, what would we do? We have the phrase escapist fantasy, don't we? If no one was looking, what would I do? What would I get away with? How would I deal with that person I dislike, that unforgiveness I've got, that bitterness I've got, or that lust I've got? What would I do with stuff in a shop if no one was looking? Would I just take it? And our escapist fantasy or our unrestrained passions show up where we actually really are a lot of the time. And Paul wants Titus to remind himself that actually the place that we start from is a place which he calls foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved. And that's part of the gospel of Jesus. Jesus, it says, wouldn't entrust himself to anyone because he knew what was in their heart. He looks at people one time and he says, you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. But Jesus knows that the human condition is deeply wrong. When someone comes to him who has been laid flat uh, with a paralyzing illness, the first thing he says to him is, son, your sins are forgiven. Because he knows that his most fundamental problem, despite his crippling socioeconomic condition and health condition, is that he's a sinner and he needs forgiveness. And so this is the starting point of the gospel. This is what we start with. And it's why it's not an easy sell in today's culture. Because we're not a culture that wants to be told that we're not all right as we are. We want to be told it's okay to do it our way. So that's chapter three. Chapter two explains, and we'll hear more on this next week, that all of God's community, all of God's people should become temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and endurance, not slanderers, not addicted, uh, loving uh, their family members, self-controlled, pure, busy at home, kind, not maligning and self-controlled, kicking in again. So the entire community of faith is not supposed to just go with this sort of flow of culture which sweeps them one way. The entire community of faith is supposed to be self-controlled and living out in a way that's against this flow of society which is pushing us in one way really fast. The culture going so fast that one way towards depravity and self-deception despite you know, what's good in our culture and what's good in our original creation that if you just do nothing, after a while you're passively taken along by culture. Now for Titus, chapter 1, the culture he was living in uh, is, is explained in verse 12, where people lie, are evil, evil brutes and lazy gluttons. <laughs> so they're drinking a lot, they're fighting a lot, they're lying about stuff, they're just, you know, they haven't got the law, they haven't got the Ten Commandments, they're just living the way they want to. I'll do it my way. Who cares about your way? I'll do it my way. And that's the culture that he's got to fight against. But I don't know if that describes UK culture very well. 
Um, maybe certain amount of gluttony going on. There may be deceit and lying. I mean, tax returns are going in this month, aren't they? <laughs> There's a certain amount of lying and deceit that probably goes on all over the place. But I wonder if the more dominant culture here is more a sort of going with the flow passivity. Like a really passive sort of thing going on. The Church of England is the church for England, and it's always had this phrase, the via media, uh, the middle way. It was the middle way between the Reformed Church, the hardcore Puritans, and the Catholic Church. Uh, It was the middle way uh, between all sorts of ideas of intellectual and emotionalism. It was a middle way consistently, and if you want to find a way to get an Anglican vicar to change a light bulb. You just have to uh, put three in a row and put the good one in the middle and they'll pick the middle one and and put that in. Let's find a middle position. It's sort of where we are politically, isn't it? It's why it's been a bit weird in in the last 10 years because we'd sort of settled happily into the most middle way you could possibly be, all the parties moving to the middle. And then suddenly we had these jumps to the left and the right and we were a bit like, what's going on? This feels uncomfortable because for most people, the middle way feels all right. We like to be in the flow. We like to keep our heads down. We like to not fight, not to have controversy. We like to fit in. And uh, Paul wants to tell Titus, look, guys, if you're going to go with the flow of culture, it's going to lead you right back to the mess that you started in, which is when you were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved. And in order for you not to just go with the flow of culture, you're going to have to appoint people who are prepared to speak the truth to you, even what you don't want to hear. And we're going to call them elders. Elders, in verse 7, are defined simply as people who manage God's household. It's It's the idea of being a steward in the Roman world. Do you know who a steward was? You'd have maybe quite a big sort of Roman household, uh, and there would be someone who was put in charge of the master's stuff. You know, maybe in our day-to-day, you may be working for a company that's got shareholders, and there's a, a chief executive officer or a head of a charity answering to trustees. They're stewarding the company or stewarding the charity on behalf of the people who own it. Uh, and he's saying, these people are supposed to be the stewards of God's household. Now, what sort of people does he say should be stewarding? And, and sort of what's their scope? Um, well, these stewards are supposed to be blameless. They're supposed to be faithful to, it says, his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. They must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. On the other hand, they're going to be hospitable, loving what's good, self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined, holding firmly to the trustworthy message has been taught so they can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. There's a few things to, to touch on here by way of preamble. Um, not all that we can answer fully, but it's worth recognizing that the culture here in Crete in the first century was one where pretty much everyone was in a sort of married family unit. And that's not our case here in 21st century London or in our church. In fact, half of the adults who come to church uh, come 
on their own or as single people one way or another. Yeah. So we're living in a, a different cultural situation there. Pretty much everyone was in marriage units. It's great that we've got the Securely Single course coming along, uh, and we need to understand that our context is different. Uh, here also, the elders uh, are clearly male in the book of Titus. But that's not everything it says about eldership through the New Testament. And uh, if I had time, I could walk you through uh, all of the different ways that that women in ministry is validated biblically and why we think from the scripture that women can be in eldership as well in God's church. I haven't got time to do that in this talk, but it's a really important thing to say that we're not just ignoring this verse and walking on, but there's an entire trajectory of scripture which we're building on to say that this verse here isn't, in that sense, exclusive. Uh, but yet the, the man married to his wife, making that image of God together, is a core building block of the church society that Paul wants to affirm that this unit that declares the image of God, as it says in Genesis, is a good place to start in terms of the church. Of course, Paul, as far as we know, was a single person who's writing this himself. He's not precluding single people uh, being in leadership in the church, and Jesus was a single person as well. So this verse doesn't preclude single people from leadership, and that's important to understand. The second thing that we need to say by way of preamble is that a passage like this can be used appallingly and quite hurtfully uh, for people in church, and particularly thinking of a good number of you here who have been pastor's kids or vicar's kids or missionary kids growing up. It's very easy for a church leader to get into a fearful position reading something like this and think, oh, I've got to make sure my kids conform so that Mrs. Jones or whoever it is <laughs> won't think that I'm a bad vicar or minister or missionary and won't have a go at me. And therefore, that said vicar putting extraordinary pressure on their children to conform, not out of love for them or desire for them to grow in Jesus, but actually out of their own insecurities and fears and worries about what people might say about them. And that's clearly not how Paul hoped that this passage would be used, but it is the situation that people have walked through down their lives. And yet, and there is still a great truth there, isn't there? That what Paul's saying, like, is if you can't get it right at home, there's a good chance that you won't be able to get it right stewarding God's household as well. If you can't be faithful in the small things, uh, then maybe you won't be so faithful in the good things. Now, to go back to my minister buddies on Facebook and the 40% who wanted to change jobs or give up, now, this sort of thing is difficult, isn't it? I mean, how many people have walked through their entire lives with their children sort of obediently following behind them, <laughs> believing exactly what they've said all the time? And actually, we know that in personal development, that's not actually what you want for children, is it? You want them to go to a point where they actually question, shake, think, and then work things out for themselves. There's a journey, isn't there, that we talk about of growing into things. Some people very easily fit into things, but others rebel against things. So we had a great example a few weeks ago at the six o'clock service. We had a visiting speaker called James DeCastiglione, a talk really worth watching. And he was talking about the time when his dad 
uh, became a vicar and went to training college to train to be a vicar. And he said that it caused him no end of internal issues. He hated it because his experience of church had been of really stuffy, boring churches, and he thought his dad was going to become like the vicar who told him off when he was in the choir and had a go at him all the time. And so he ended up in drugs and all sorts of stuff, sleeping around a really terrible life until one day his parents paid for him to go to New Wine. <laughs> and on the last day, he attended the festival gathering and got radically converted um, after years of disruption at home. And his parents paying, uh, praying for him faithfully against all odds and in great anguish. He's now a wonderful church leader and minister. So we don't take a, a verse like this and just sort of wipe people out uh, because they're going for a stage in life or a journey in life that's difficult. But there is a sort of thing where, where as Paul's saying, look, make sure life's all right at home before you step out in leadership. It's a, it's a key place, isn't it, to get things right. And part of this is uh, this word about being blameless, not being overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. And you'll note that many of the things it says about the church leader in chapter one, or, and, and think this, this group of people on a small island, he's probably appointing quite a lot of them across the island to small group churches, churches of 20 or 30 people probably, and what, what does that equate to today? You, know, you might look at the list and go, oh, yes, that equates to Justin Welby. Um, or our own Bishop of Kensington, or to Nicola, or, or to me. But there's something that is always it's comfortable to push away, isn't it? Push up to the next level. And actually, I think it relates to anyone taking any responsibility in church and saying, come on, let's get like this. Because chapter 2, pretty much the same list occurs, except in particular, this ability to teach and set things in order. And he's saying, look, you've got to be able to teach uh, sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Because the church is going to be under siege from the stepping off to the left and stepping off to the right that we began with. There are going to be people, and in this particular chapter, there are people of, uh, of a sort of a Jewish background who are saying, what you really need is Christianity plus the it's not fair, I want them to do the stuff I've had to do as well, which was circumcision or keeping the Jewish law. All my life I've been a good Jew, and now this lot have become Jews too by becoming Christians, and I want them to have to keep everything, keep all the commandments, keep all the law, keep all the Sabbath, keep all the circumcision. I want them to do it because they need to do all this stuff to be right with God. And on the other hand, you've got those who are going quotes unquotes to the pure, everything is pure. It's all right. Jesus has saved me by grace through faith. It's okay. I can do what I like. I can live how I like. I can, I'll, just, I'll just do whatever. It's all right. I can live my own way. I'm going to go my own way. It's okay. To the pure, all things are pure. It might not be pure for you, but it's pure for me. God's told me. It might be that God's got a way of doing sex or a way of doing marriage, maybe God's got a way of doing money or fine, but for the pure, all things are pure. And I'm just all right like at this over here. And he's like, someone's got to stand in the middle and go, that's, that's a mess. That, that's not good. 
In the Old Testament, God raised up people to be leaders. And time and time again, they weren't everything that we wanted. I'll let you into a not really very big secret. In the Christian era, God raises up leaders. And time and time again, we're not everything that we wanted or God wanted. They got it wrong in the Old Testament again and again, and we get it wrong in the Christian era again and again. One such guy was Eli in the Old Testament. And his sons had just gone wrong. Yeah? They'd gone wrong. They were in the tabernacle, the center of worship, and they loved money. They loved sex, and they loved power. And when people brought worship stuff, sacrifices and things, instead of doing what they were supposed to do, which was burn it all up for God, they would make sure they took a choice steak out of the meat before they burnt it and eat it. It was going to be burnt anyway. Why shouldn't they? And then they would sleep with people who would come there and just let their passions do whatever they wanted to. They had Eli as their daddy. He was a brilliant man of God, except for one thing. He couldn't say boo to a goose when it came to his children. He wouldn't tell his children, you've gone the wrong way. My goodness me, is that a hard call for parents? And one you can get really badly wrong out of fear, like we said earlier. But he wouldn't say you've gone the wrong way. Now, please don't hear me as this going, go away and tell your children you've gone wrong. It's more, the answer in the Old Testament is more like being like Job, who every morning after his kids had a party used to do a sacrifice to God in case his kids had done wrong. That was the model of a righteous man in the Old Testament. It wasn't one going, no, but one who was pleading with God for them and presumably telling them what the standard was as well. But Eli got it wrong and God replaced him and his family with a little boy called Samuel. In our era, we've just in this last few months seen people who have been platformed on the biggest stages fall off their pedestal with hidden sin. A guy who was running something called the Lash Communities. I remember hearing him speak. He was on platform at Royal Albert Hall, interviewed by Nicky Gumbel. Turns out he's abused six or seven women over the last 20 years. He's a monster, but everyone called him a living saint because his inner life didn't match the public life. And in the, I was in the more Catholic end of the world and in the evangelical end of the world, there was a tremendous apologist called Ravi Zacharias. Went around the world explaining Christianity to people, say from a Hindu background. Made a huge impact on hundreds of thousands of people. It turns out he was setting up masseur sessions that led into sexual sessions wherever he went. These are like heroes of the 20th century church, platformed by every big conference you could think of, and yet screwed up on the inside. So although there's a sort of trigger warning when you read this sort of passage, it turns out it's still necessary in the 21st century. Because we've still got the same tendency to either go, make sure everyone does what I've got to do, or I'll just do what I like. I don't, the rules don't apply to me. 
And we deceive ourselves so easily. We excuse ourselves so easily that unless someone says to us, come on, you've got to keep going in that straight and narrow way, we end up in a self-validating mess. I'm okay, Jesus loves me. I'm okay, Jesus loves me. I'm okay, Jesus. And suddenly we're in a swamp. And unless someone pulls us out, we might just stay there. And so God, through Paul, tells Titus and tells us to point people who will keep telling us the truth, who will keep holding us to the standard of truth. And this is not an easy place to be. If you're leading a small group and you're charged with holding people to a standard of truth, if you're volunteering in the youth ministry and you're charged with holding people to a standard of truth, if you're discipling a friend one-to-one and they, they just tell you in a private conversation, look, yeah, no, I'm, you know, I'm going to sleep with someone else or you know, the wine's taken over, it's half a bottle a night now, but it's going up and up and up. You're charged with to tell them the truth. I can remember when I was a young curate, way too young for the conversation to have occurred, a, a man who was in a senior leadership position in our church came to me. I, he was nearly 20 years older than me. And he said, well, I'm fed up of my marriage. I'm, uh, you know, I think I'm going to leave my wife and my three kids. And I, I'd known what that was like from the other end of the story. Um, as a kid, you know. And I was like, please don't. But, you know, what can you do? You're like just another human being, aren't you? And what do you know about someone else's life? What, what have you got to hold someone up to and say, don't do that? And that's why we've got an externally validated truth system that's not just about us and our experience. We've still got God's words, his law, his sense of what's right and wrong. And we don't live under legalism where there's no way back if you've sinned. We don't live under, you've got to keep all the law and that's what's going to save you. But we do still live under truth. And according to Jesus Christ, truth sets you free. And anyone who brings someone back from sin can save their spiritual life. This dear man actually repented, relented, turned. And his children are all still lovely believers in the church. They're young adults now, some of them in their own levels of responsibility. And they've kept going. Yeah, it's not a guarantee. I don't know the ins and outs of his marriage. I'm sure it's not always easy. You know, it's easy in today's universe to say, you know, I self-identify as an adulterer. (laughs) I self-identify as someone who would sleep with hundreds of people. Yeah, that might be your true reality. 
But the scripture says if you go God's way, it's a freeing way. You might not get to do everything you feel you want to do in life. You might not get to live out every passion that's stirred up in you. But don't let anyone deceive you that makes you incomplete as a human being. Jesus Christ was a single man and the most complete human being who ever lived. Amen. He was utterly fulfilled. Amen. He didn't do a Dan Brown or Mary Magdalene. He didn't need to. He had a perfect relationship with his daddy in heaven. Fulfilling relationships with people around him. And he was genuinely, securely single. And whatever state God's called you into, whether you're married, single, waiting, hoping, hurting, broken, dreaming, frustrated, we've got to get above the lie that there's something in this world that's going to make all the difference. The truth is, and where Paul takes us to, and this is where we finish, the truth is, in the first few verses of Titus 1, that the knowledge of truth leads to godliness, and that brings the hope of eternal life. And there's nothing better for you. You may have been swimming in a sea of Netflix, Amazon Prime, and Disney Plus over the last two to five to ten years. You may have been swimming in a culture that just says, just give up, just comatose. You may have been swimming in a culture that shouts out against anyone who puts their head above the parapet and says anything about anything in this culture. And just go, I've just got to put my head down and give in. But Paul says to Titus, says to us, truth matters. Truth sets you free. Truth leads to godliness. And there's nothing better in this life than godliness. It's not being a goody-goody two-shoes. It's not being anything. It's literally having God in you so much that it overflows around you. Life in all its fullness bubbling through you. That's a great definition of godliness. Not a tight, narrow, constricting thing, but an embracing thing. It's Jesus Christ. Living like Jesus. Truth-speaking and free. It's so against our culture on an increasing basis that this is tarred. But it's still what the world around you needs and actually really desperately wants, even when they don't know it yet. So friends, I give you this charge. Preach the word. In season, and out of season. Hold firm to the truth. Discharge the duties of an evangelist. Don't give up, because he hasn't given up on us. And his word is truth. And his word sets us free. Paul once looked at a church and said to them, when I leave you, wolves will come behind and devour you up. Friends, at some points in your life, you're going to have to decide where you stand in God's kingdom. Are you going to 
choose to be under ministry that speaks you the truth? Or are you going to be places where they just tell you nice things you want to hear that make you feel buzzing and good for a few seconds? You have to choose that in your friendship groups, your relationships. To choose. And my prayer is that to the end of your days, you will choose to be faithful to the gospel of Jesus and that you'll know that it sets you free. Let's pray together. God, please would you give us a vision right now. A vision of eternity that is so compelling. We will endure the cross together. A vision of what godliness can mean in this life. That's so compelling that we'll be prepared to be self-controlled to achieve it. A vision of Jesus that captures us and gives us a vision of who we can be as well. In his precious name I pray. Amen. I'd just love to have the, uh, the band come up now. And uh, you may just want to take a few moments to sort of think on these things. You know, it's our discipline here as a church to try and preach book by book through the scriptures. It'd be much easier just to give a nice sort of pep talk for New Year, how to be successful in life or something. But this truth can transform us. So as we respond in worship, just pray and say, God, please show me what you want me to take from today and help me to be as changed as you want me to be. In Jesus' name. Amen.